Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Laid and it's Friday, January the 16th. We have two features in this week's podcast. In a moment, we'll be hearing from a Norwegian doctor who has recently been on the ground in Gaza. He will be describing the health and humanitarian situation in that region. Also, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. I'll be talking to the author of a population-based study in this week's issue, which suggests that these two disorders may be more closely associated than previously thought. And before we hear about the health and humanitarian situation in Gaza, just a few other content highlights to give you. We have a long editorial about chronic diseases in the United States, research articles on dyspepsia, on sepsis, and on the pricing, affordability and accessibility of medicines in 36 developing and middle-income countries. But I think it's fair to say that this week's issue of The Lancet is dominated by a special report, four pages in the issue, concerning the health and humanitarian situation in Gaza. Earlier, I spoke to Dr. Mads Gilbert, who is a professor of medicine at a hospital in northern Norway, who has recently been on the ground in Gaza. The state of the healthcare system in Gaza is extremely difficult, and this is due to two factors. Number one, a long-lasting, very harsh siege of Gaza, which has lasted for at least 18 months. This has caused a complete depletion, actually, of spare parts, uh, disposables, all kind of things you need to run a hospital, let alone the upgrading of fairly worn and torn hospital system in Gaza. In addition to this, the uh, attack on Gaza caused, of course, uh, another blow to the healthcare system due to the fact that all electricity was cut, the water supplies became unstable, the supplies of medical items and drugs went from very limited to basically zero. In addition to this, of course, the overall situation with the bombing and the lack of security caused the pre-hospital systems to be forced to work under extreme conditions. And so far, uh, at least 12 ambulances have been rocketed and and destroyed by the uh, forces. Up to now, 11 uh, paramedics and doctors have been killed on duty in the pre-hospital system. Then it is, of course, the overriding problem for the healthcare system is uh, the uh, conditions for the civilian population. One thing is the bombing and the casualties caused by the bombing, which you all see on television. But really, I think from a medical point of view, the most worrisome uh, part of the situation is the siege and the lack of food. The lack of sufficient water supply, sanitation, the shops are also everything from napkins to milk powder for the kids. The life condition for uh, the one and a half million uh, people in Gaza is extremely difficult and that is a, a major background variable for your health. The primary health care system, like the clinics in the camps, uh, have broken down. So, I mean, commonplace diseases and disorders like uh, stroke or heart attack or high blood pressure or your diabetic condition cannot be followed up. So I would say that overall, the condition of the healthcare system from the pre-hospital uh, to the primary health care to the hospital is really a huge uh, disastrous situation. And then on top of that, of course, comes up till now four and a half thousand wounded and uh, almost thousand killed. So this is really, a, I would say from my experience worldwide with disasters and war, uh, this is a huge immeasurable uh, disaster for the users of the system that is the Palestinian people in Gaza. Indeed, and the words Dante's Inferno are actually used in the special report. And um, please, everyone, as I said, to reiterate, this podcast does not replace 
the special report. This is additional to it. Please do go and read it. Just following up on, on, on that, thank you very much for, the, for that overview. In terms of the clinical situation within Gaza's hospitals, can you just briefly summarise for listeners, paint a picture of what, let's try and be, I guess, positive for a moment, what kind of level of clinical care is possible within, within Gaza's hospital environment? For security reasons, we could only stay at Shifa Hospital. I have been previously to all hospitals in Gaza. I work there regularly, as well as Dr. Eric Fosse, who is a cardiac thoracic surgeon and travelled with me on the Norwak team. We know the, the hospital system quite well, but we could not inspect all the hospitals for fear of being killed during the indiscriminate bombing. So I can only speak from the base of the experience in Gaza, Shifa Hospital. The uh, staff there, the doctors and uh, nurses and uh, volunteers uh, are very skilled. And what strikes you when you come there is that they are really not losing the grip of the situation, despite the fact that we had from 120 to 150 casualties in one day regularly. What they try to do is actually to do a triage to find out who can survive with some surgery, who do not need surgery now and will survive anyhow, and who are lost. You could say we divide them in three. The lucky ones, the walking and talking, going out of the emergency room. The needing ones, those who have some kind of injury that could be uh, amended with some sort of basic surgery. And the third group, the unlucky ones who may still be uh, alive or ag- agonal but uh, cannot be saved even by the most aggressive surgery. Uh, and they should have pain killing and empathic support but should not go to the OR. And then in the OR, you have to really be tough and find out who in this pile of bleeding and amputated or shrapnel uh, hit persons uh, should you take first. And this is a very, very difficult task given the fact that the hospital has extremely limited uh, measures for monitoring of vital signs. Indeed, in the emergency room, uh, the, we have two monitors, but in the, in the reception hall where the casualties, mass casualties come in, we have only a few uh, blood pressure apparatus. So just to assess the oxygen saturation and the blood pressure, which are fairly uh, critical to, to deciding the physiological condition of, of the trauma patient, it's very difficult. Now, what do we do in the OR? Well, the Palestinians are extremely swift. They do amputations quickly when it's needed. We've seen a number of these very peculiar amputations, which we suspect comes from a new type of of weapon called the dime weapon. We have seen a lot of head injuries. They do quickly craniotomies to uh, evacuate hematomas and decompress and lift up impression fractures. They are extremely quick at putting in uh, chest tubes, only on a suspicious level, you know, like if they suspect a hemoneumothorax from the inlet uh, picture or from the clinical condition, they will have two chest tubes within a couple of minutes. They do uh, toracotomies quite rarely. They let the the chest tube drain until it's uh, stopping the bleeding. If they bleed more than the average amount that we expect should have been stopped, then they will have a toracotomy. We have done a number of laparotomies in um, blunt traumas and shrapnel traumas, and we have done combined operations. But I think to sum up, the majority in the younger ones are head injuries and abdominal injuries, and in the adults, it is these gross amputations of one, two, or three limbs. A couple of final thoughts. The international law states that the provision of help, assistance, medical care to innocent civilians should always continue regardless of the um, conflict situation. How much is that or happening or not happening in Gaza at the moment? 
Well, really, uh, to tell you the truth, I come from Norway, and I, I thought I was living in 2009 within a system of nations which are daily uh, protecting the principles of humanity and human rights. I have been absolutely shocked by going to Gaza. The population is deliberately starved. The food lines were six to eight hours to get some bread, if they could get bread from the few bakeries that st still had ovens operating or had flour. The supply lines of every, uh, you know, needed item for the daily life are cut by the siege. The hospital supply lines are very limited and we experienced ourselves being shot in front of by the Israeli forces when we were evacuating 16 ambulances with critically care, uh, injured. So all these fundamental rights and uh, protection rules for the civilian populations are deliberately and to a great extent violated every hour. Uh, and as we are speaking, uh, they still don't have enough food. Uh, the doctors told me that previously you could get five kilos of tomatoes for one shekel. Now one kilo of tomato costs seven shekel. The only vegetables in the market are potatoes, onions, and tomatoes. And there was a very, very clear lack of food. The second thing is, of course, that when you bomb such densely populated area, you cannot really uh, obey the Geneva Convention where the uh, warring parties have to avoid mixed military and civilian targets. And this reflects in the numbers. I mean, every day the Minister of Health uh, is giving out numbers. As of yesterday, 311 children had been killed from the start. That uh, composes 40% of the killed. Among the injured, uh, for 1,497 children had been injured, composing 50% of the injured. I read in the Horrors that the Israeli IDF spokesman said that 90% of the bombs hit the intended target, quote-unquote. And with that in mind, uh, the great number of civilians we see both as starving, as unprotected in their daily life, and as the patient flow shows us, the majority, maybe 90% are civilians, this is an overall attack, I think, on all regulations on warfare. Not, not only that, I think it is, uh, I'm sad to say that, it is an attack on our common humanity in Europe. And I'm, I'm extremely worried that this happens. And it is not known outside because the um, attacking uh, nation, Israel, also has denied access for all the international press. That's why we had to report. And I think it's the first war in our time that has been blinded out by, by the warring attacker, uh, not allowing the free press to work. This is extremely serious, and it is endangering and killing uh, people every hour. And the health of the Palestinian people in, uh, in Gaza is really at great risk and currently being completely attacked that also by, uh, by the Israeli forces, I'm sorry to say. Thank you. Final question then. Are you a doctor? Are you a journalist? Are you both? Is what you're saying now in any way political? How do you take any criticism about what you're saying? Well, I'm a whole person. I'm a human being. I'm social. I'm emotional. I'm physical. I am uh, medical as a professional. I'm political. So I'm all, all aspects of that. And I think it's hard to distinguish. I'm a scientist and I report what I see. And Dr. Eric and I said to say we, we didn't need to exaggerate or make political statements. We, we've just told what we've been seeing. And that is the duty of the doctor. I mean, if this British chap did not map out where in London the diarrheal cases were along the, the pipelines for water and sewage, he wouldn't have found out that, you know, contamination of the water caused this diarrhea. We are, as doctors, 
obliged to talk about the general conditions of life for our patients and our populations. Those are the most important preconditions for health. You know, it's poverty, it's food, it's water, it's security. And in Gaza now, you cannot be a doctor if you do not talk about the general condition. Call that political? Well, that is only a way to try to mute us because somebody doesn't like that reality. We have not been preaching. We have been reporting, and we did not choose to report. Israel chose us to be reporters because they denied access for the whole international press. Dr. Mads Gilbert, thank you very much indeed for talking to The Lancet. Richard, thank you so much for having this chance. And uh, I'm indeed, on behalf of Eric and myself and the staff in Shifa Hospital, I'm sure, I'll urge you all to uh, keep on watching the situation and come forward with your voice. That's what's needed now. Many thanks to Mads Gilbert. Also this week, we publish a population-based study looking at bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. It's been debated in psychiatry for many years that the two may be more closely associated than people often think. Here's one of the authors of that research article, Dr. Paul Lichtenstein from the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. In the infancy of psychiatry, which is some hundred years ago, Emil Kreppelin tried to, to categorize the dis- disorders into classification, and he classified them into schizophrenia and bipolar disorder or manic depressive disorder. These, these categories have been kept, even though a lot of empirical data is starting to accumulate that they, well, this, this dichotomy between these two disorders are not at all as clear-cut as it was thought in the beginning. But in a way, because of the resistance to change, the, the psychiatric community has, has continued to use this dichotomy anyway. Can you just comment on any similarities that there are between the actual characteristics of these two disorders among people who actually experience either bipolar disorder or schizophrenia? There are, of course, very typical clear-cut uh, schizophrenia patients or bipolar disorder patients, but... I mean, the more we learn about this, the more blurred the picture is. And, for example, there is now a, a third category, which is called schizoaffective disorder, which try to have this um, delusion and hallucinations together with mood problems. Could you just briefly outline the current study? Because, as as is always, I think, amazing uh, for us people who don't live in Sweden, you're able to use um, fantastically detailed registry data, aren't you, in, in, in Sweden because of the way that, you know, the, if you like, the housekeeping or the accountancy on health is so well done? We actually used two of our fantastic registries. One registry was that we have actually detailed information of, of individuals born in Sweden since 1932. So we can find relatives to everyone in Sweden born since 1932. That's what we have done. And then the other registry, which we also have used, is the hospital discharge registry, where we have all hospitalizations for psychiatric disorders. So from that, these two uh, registries, we could identify null 9 million individuals in 2 million nuclear families. And we also identified about 40,000 patients with schizophrenia and 40,000 patients with bipolar disorders. And what specifically were you setting out to achieve? Was it to see whether there was a close association between the frequency of bipolar disorder and also schizophrenia in these families? Yes, you can say that. I mean, we, we both studied the, the, the risk then in, in family. If you had a patient in your family, what was the risk for other families 
members for, for the same disorders. For example, if the patient has schizophrenia, what was the risk for schizophrenia for that for the other family members? But also, what was the risk for bipolar disorder for, for these other family members? And what did you find out? We found that, well, we studied different family members. We studied siblings, full siblings, and whole siblings. We studied parent and offspring relationship, and we uh, studied adoptive relationships. For example, then if we had a patient or case with schizophrenia, we could show that all these relatives had an increased r- uh, risk for having the disease disorder themselves. But the closer the genetic relationship, the higher the risk. So, for example, full siblings had a higher risk than half siblings. And this pattern, if we t- took it all together, it was very consistent with the genetic effect. And together, we could estimate the, the heritability, as we call it, for schizophrenia then to be 64%. The proportion of the liability to schizophrenia, the proportion of that liability that is due to genetic effects was 64%. And for bipolar disorder? And for bipolar disorder, we get very similar results. It was very similar to that. But maybe most interesting then was when we looked at the, the risk for other disorder, if you have uh, one disorder. So if you look at the risk for family members find bipolar disorder for patients who have schizophrenia. And here again, we could see that the pattern was very consistent with a strong relationship. And these relationships, this comorbidity was to a large extent due to genetic factors. So what was the rate of comorbidity or the, the risk of comorbidity? Well, if a sibling had a schizophrenia, it was about four times the increased risk for the other sibling to have bipolar disorder. A relative risk compared with the general population or compared with a population who did not have schizophrenia. Exactly. Just finally, please, Professor Lichtenstein, what, what are the implications in terms of guidelines for psychiatry and also for patients? I think it's important for treatment and for, for uh, especially for physicians to try to, and maybe not trying to categorize uh, patients in these disorders, but more look at symptoms, and also for them for treatments to, to maybe use treatments and develop treatments according to the symptoms rather than these distinct two disorders. Our research now is so consistent with all, all other evidence of that, that there is a common etiology and a common uh, between these two disorders. So I think it, it is time now to start to try to reevaluate how we, how we categorize these the psychotic disorders. And I think it's important for psychiatrists to realize that they are not, not two distinct disorders, but they should try to more look at, at symptoms rather than try to categorize people in these two distinct disorders. And I think this has implications also for treatment then how we can develop new medication. Indeed, well, it's a fascinating study. Professor Paul Lichtenstein on the line from the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm in Sweden. Thank you very much indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you. Many thanks to Paul Lichtenstein and thank you all for listening to this extended podcast. See you next week.